hills. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of the Killer Music Podcast. The Killer Music Podcast. We're back again. And this time we're going to talk about Frank Albert Zappa. <laughs> I, think I think it's Frank Vincent Zappa. Whatever. I don't know what I'm talking about. Welcome to another episode of the Killer Music Podcast. I'm your host, Morton Robustos, and my co-host, Pablo. Pablo is here. And tonight, we're talking about none other than the maestro of disaster, the bell-bottom pants-wearing, the long-hair-having, the big-mustachioed, the instrument-loving Frank Zappa. Born in Baltimore, Maryland on December 21st, 1940, Frank Zappa was largely a self-taught musician whose 30-year career embraced a wide variety of musical genres encompassing rock, jazz, synth, and symphonies, avant-garde composers, as well as math and chemistry from his father's work all fell into Zappa's mix of influences and comprised his unique approach to his art coupled with the flouting of convention. Zappa also directed films, designed album covers, and spoke about social issues. Although his unconventional aspect often overshadowed his brilliance, Zappa is highly respected as a musical pioneer. He died from prostate cancer on December 4, 1993, at age 52. Frank Vincent Zappa, the first of four children to Rose Marie, and Francis Vincent Zappa, a Sicilian immigrant. The family moved frequently due to Francis Vincent Zappa's expertise as a chemist and mathematician, contracted with various aspects of the defense industry. Young Zappa's exposure to chemicals, such as mustard gas, may have had a profound effect on his health, which was always challenging. He showed early interest in innovation via gadgets, but this soon turned to music. Avant-garde composers such as Igor Stravinsky and Edgar Varese attracted him alongside interest in doo-wop and R&B and modern jazz. The family eventually settled outside of Los Angeles in Zappa's late teens, and he soon took up drums and guitar. His proficiency, proficiency grew so quickly that by his last year in high school, he was writing, composing, and conducting avant-garde arrangements for the school orchestra. He launched his career as a professional musician shortly after high school, but income was sporadic. Recordings brought in more money than local gigs. His racially diverse band, The Blackouts, bumped up against 1950s racism. There were some scoring of independent films, one commissioned by his high school English teacher, a job at a recording studio led to acquiring it as a business, but an entrapment arrest by local authorities over a pornographic audio tape shut it down. Going back to the band route, Zappa joined the Soul Giants, soon converting them from a bar cover band to performing his original material. They morphed into The Mothers on Mother's Day in 1965. Okay, so what I got from that was uh, all very interesting. But I'm also wondering how Frank Zappa, at his age, 
Yeah, the mustard would've, gas. Would have would have been exposed to mustard gas. It's really what the fuck. What the fuck? Because that was a uh, the Germans during World War One used that as a a weapon, a, a weapon, chemical weapon, a chemical weapon in World War One, which backfired because they didn't take into part that wind happens and it was also blowing on yeah. their troops too. And the, yeah, that was that was a failed weapon, but it was super brutal. Yeah. Super brutal. And I mean, he was he was a kid back then, so But yeah, but it, it was it just it just sparked my curiosity yeah, about how, how he was how he would be he's like yeah, the World War One was over a long time before Frank Zappa was even born, so it, it sparked my curiosity a little bit. So according to Wikipedia, a doctor treated his sinus sinus Sinusitis. Sinusitis. I never heard of... How many of you have heard of sinusitis? Dude, you don't know sinusitis? A doctor treated his sinusitis by inserting a pellet of radium into each of Zappa's nostrils. Zappa believed his childhood diseases might have been due to his exposure to mustard gas released by the nearby chemical warfare facility and his health worsened when he lived in Baltimore. Okay. That's interesting. So maybe there was a, a factory by where he lived that produced mustard gas. There's a possibility, yeah. Well, he's complaining about it because from what I know of uh, Frank Zappa, that he was kind of a teetotaler like, yeah. compared to like everybody else in that era of like the 65 through the 70s were pretty druggy. And yeah, it he, was, he was a sober dude. He was a sober dude. He liked coffee and cigarettes and yep. sex. Lots of coffee, lots of cigarettes. Lots of sex. Lots of sex. And, uh, yeah, so maybe uh, you would have a notion not to do drugs if, like, the first thing you were ever introduced to were <laughs> yeah. was possibly mustard gas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that explains a lot. Yeah, or, or to, like, see that culture and to be... Um, Exposed are working with musicians that were fucked up when you were really serious mm-hmm. and trying to deal with these people. Yeah, yeah. So, and I know that uh, went on through his career as like almost uh, James Brown style. You don't show up yep. fucked up or you're out of here. Yep. You're losing your paid gig. Yep. You, you're you sober and we're working on this stuff. So he was, he, Frank Zappa, his music could be really silly at times, but. Uh, he was a very serious musician. It was orchestrated, and he was yeah. a very serious musician. So how were you exposed to Frank Zappa, Paul? I was exposed to Frank Zappa by my best friend and ex-singer, um, rest in peace, Nick Galvis. Rest in peace. Um, he was a really, he was a music nerd like me and said, hey, you got to check this album out. And I think it was the soundtrack to 100 Motels. And I was like, oh, this is really cool because it's, it's it's just comedy music that's played by really great musicians. <laughs> and then after that, I fell in love. And the way I am is when I fall in love with something, I have to have, like, everything. Of, Absolutely. Like, if I fall in love with a <laughs> musician, I get all their albums and deep you dive. You just Im- immerse yourself in Yeah, it. I totally immerse myself. And then, so, that's how I got into it. And this was like in early high school. I got voted to, in, in like a high school yearbook thing, to be most likely to open up a Frank Zappa museum. 
because I was so in Damn. <laughs> I'm like in the yearbook, like, hey. <laughs> who gets that? Who who gets to be most likely to open up Frank Zappa Museum? Me. Paul does. <laughs> I have a funny 200 motel story, and I'll make it really quick. But it, when I started getting into Frank Zappa, it was like the early 90s, yada, yada. But the Pixies were playing in town. I was a huge Pixies fan. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was going to the music store to get bass strings. And I lived in this punk rock house called the Lost Cross House. And I was going to get bass strings so I could change my strings for the show that we are getting ready to do, like the night before the Pixies were playing. And I'm walking across the street. And all of a sudden, I'll, of course, I'm looking both ways, even though it's a one-way street, I still look both ways. But uh, I looked down the street and I was like, man, that guy looks familiar. I'm like, stared at him a little bit, squinting my eyes and shit. And I was like, holy shit, that's Dave Lovering from the Pixies. He's a drummer for the Pixies. And I'm like, whoa. So I just like walked over and I was like, are you Dave Lovering? And he's like, who the fuck knows the drummer of any <laughs> band? And I'm like, oh, boy, I do. I, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of the Pixies. And I was like, yeah. and he's like, okay. He's like, uh, I was like, are you looking for anything? He's like, I'm looking for a place to get pizza. So I took him to this pretty good pizza pit place in Carbondale at the time, Quattro's Pizza, which still exists, but yeah, no. um, <laughs> but it was really good at the time. Nice. And so I went, so we went there. And I hung, I was hanging out with my favorite That's band's cool. drummer in the yeah. world, the and the Pixies, David Delivering, and uh, he's like, I was like, do you got time to kill? Yada yada. After food, and he's like, yeah. So. We got some beers and went back to the Lost Cross house and hung out. And my band practiced there at the time. And my drummer, whose favorite drummer at the time was David Lover. Mm-hmm. But he was working at a shit job somewhere and uh, wasn't there at the time because it was during the day. Mm-hmm. And so me and David Levering had a bunch of weed and bongs and we did a bunch of bongs and watched 200 motels nice and got super fucking stoned and then friends were showing up I was like holy shit who's that I'm like that's Dave Lovering from the Pixies <laughs> and I was like what everybody's like what the fuck so all of a sudden people started gathering around yada 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 and he's like well I gotta take off it's like I'm like dude before you take off you gotta play these drums and they were sitting there it was like okay and he starts playing the drum set yada 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 like kicking ass Playing the drum <laughs> set, cool. just making it rock, and all all my friends are just hanging out, going, "Holy <laughs> shit, holy shit!" Yeah. And uh, he goes home, and my drummer comes back from work, and there's nobody there. I'm like, "Dude, you're never gonna <laughs> guess who was playing your drum set." He's <laughs> like, "Who the fuck was playing my drum set?" <laughs> I'm like, uh, "Dave Lovering." He's like, "Yeah, right. Who's playing my drum set?" I'm like, "No, no, no." And then my friends are like. Yeah, Dave Loverick was playing. Oh, man, you missed out. You totally missed <laughs> oh, out. He was probably super bummed. <laughs> but but he, uh, Dave Loverick also gave everybody, like, me a big-ass handful of backstage passes for the oh, show. Oh, cool, yeah. So everybody got to go for nice. free and go hang out and meet the Pixies and shit. That was pretty cool. But we did get really high and watch 200 Motels, and that That's was fucking awesome. awesome. Yeah, the first time I watched 200 Motels... I, me and my girlfriend were riding the bicycle, as it were. As it were. <clears throat> and uh, we decided to put on 200 motels because my friend Nick... How do, you, just, how do you ride a bike and watch TV? You drop tabs. <laughs> you I, I, I'm confused. How, how the fuck does that work? I mean, how can you watch TV and be on a bike ride? 
you know, you're, you're. Are you? Were you guys on like the exercise bikes? No, the bicycle, bicycle. I want to ride my. Mm. Oh, you were on bicycle acid. Yeah. Okay. See, I was thinking you guys were riding your bikes well, and you were watching TV. Like I was like, podcast. that's a fucking terrible idea. <laughs> it's like really. I'm so so back then, and like in at the time, the TV would have weighed like seventy pounds. So you'd have to have yeah. that on your handlebars, and then go <laughs> yeah, riding. It was one of those giant TVs that are like with a massive extension cord. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, we were watching that. We ditched school and took a bunch of acid, and I was like, "Oh, you got to come to my house and watch this crazy movie." <clears throat> and so we started watching that. And but then we was my girlfriend. I was a teenager. We started making out. And uh, I in learned, every episode, Paul starts making out. Yeah, sorry guys. Um, uh, my bedroom was upstairs at the time. We lived in this like tiny like con condominium, I guess. Um, and we, it was in the middle of the day, and she started taking off her clothes on on her, on her way to the to the um, to the bedroom, and my mom happened to come home from work randomly at eleven o'clock or whatever. And saw a pile of clothes going up the stairs and caught us. Holy shit. With with 200 motels still playing downstairs. <laughs> while, while being on acid. While being on acid. It was pretty fun. Did, did, what, what, what did Mama say? Mom was pissed. <laughs> she, well, what did she do? That's the most interesting I part think, of the story. What did she, your like, mom do? I, don't know. I think she, well, she obviously, like, she came to my room and pounded on my door and was like, what the fuck? And I'm like, threw on my clothes. <laughs> And I was like, oh, uh, I wasn't feeling good, so I left school. And, she, you know, I don't know. She just bitched me out, chewed me out. <laughs> and, and maybe, I like, I don't know, I had to do extra chores or something. I don't know. I don't remember. But <laughs> I was tripping, dude. I don't fucking remember. It was fun, though. We're going to go back to the 60s and talk a little bit more about the Mothers of Invention, a very pivotal band. That started in the mid sixties, mm-hmm. nineteen sixty four, to be exact. Their work is marked by the use of sonic experimentation, innovative album art, and elaborate live shows. There's a a rumor about some of their live shows. They used to have like um, rubber chickens hanging from the stage and stuff, and they'd throw them at the audience members and all kinds of weird stuff. Um, Any lawsuits from that? I don't think so. No, people were cooler. Yeah. They they went to a Frank Zappa show. I mean, what do you want? (laughs) They wanted to get hit with a rubber chicken. Yeah. So, um, originally, they were called the Soul Giants. The first band included Ray Collins, David Coronado, Ray Hunt, Roy Estrada, and Jimmy Carl Black. Mm. Frank Zappa was asked to take over as a guitarist following a fight between Collins and Coronado, the band's original saxophonist. Zappa insisted that they perform his original material, and on Mother's Day in 1964, they changed their name to The Mothers. But record record, uh, executives demanded that their name be changed, and so out of necessity, Zappa later said, we became the Mothers of Invention. That's fucking brilliant. Yeah. Necessity is the Mother of Invention. Right. That dude was smart, and i.e. he wasn't high. Yeah. He was very smart. He was a fucking genius. <laughs> anyway, they uh, first became popular playing California's underground music scene in the late 60s. 
under Zappa's helm. They were signed to the jazz uh, label Verb Records as part of the label's diversification plans. Verb released the Mothers of Invention's debut double album, Freak Out, in 1966, featuring a lineup including Zappa, Collins, Black, Estrada, and Elliot Ingber. soon after. Under Zappa's leadership and a changing lineup, the band released a series of critically acclaimed albums, including Absolutely Free, We're Only In It For The Money, and Uncle Meat, before being disbanded by Zappa in 1969. Help, I'm a rock. Help, I'm a rock. In 1970, he formed a new version of The Mothers that included Ian Underwood, Jeff Simmons, George Duke, Ainsley Dunbar, and singers Mark Volman and Howard Kalen, formerly of The Turtles, but who for contractual reasons were credited in this band as a fluorescent bleach and Eddie. Oh yeah. Later, adding another ex-Turtle, bassist Jim Pons, this lineup endured through 1971, when Zappa was injured by an audience member during a concert appearance. Probably my favorite versions of the Mothers, actually. I think, I think Leech and Eddie, or AKA Flo and Eddie, were a great addition to the um, the Mothers. They added a lot of a lot more comedy to the band. Yeah, a lot more comedy to the music. And sort of took it away from the doo-woppy stuff that he was doing. Yeah, I thought it, got, it started getting a little more experimental like this. Yeah. And well, this is the first album. <laughs> this is their very first album. I don't know shit. Well, you know more about Zappa than I do. Yeah, yeah. Is this the one that has the uh, Psychedelic Dungeon song on it? Is it? Psychedelic Dungeon? It's like, uh, oh, we might play I think that's bit. absolutely free. What are you talking about? Well, this certainly Maybe. isn't doo-wop, Paul. No, it's not. But <laughs> a lot of the albums after this, like, he had a, little, had a lot of doo-woppy. And a few songs on this album, too, are a little doo-woppy. This one's just a little, I thought was way more freaky. This is pretty freaky. Some freak-out music. Zappa focused on big band and orchestral music while recovering from his injuries in 1971. And in 1973, he formed the Mother's final lineup, which included drummer Ralph Humphrey, trumpeter Sal Marquez, keyboardist George Duke, trombonist Bruce Fowler, bassist Tim Fowler, percussionist Ruth Underwood, 
the also the xylophone player. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And keyboardist saxophonist Ian Underwood. The final album, and using the Mothers as a backing band, Bongo Fury, which also featured Captain Beefheart, um, featured guitarist uh, Denny Wally and drummer Terry Balzio, who ah, continued Terry. to play for Zappa on non-Mothers releases, Zappa's solo projects. Paul loves Frank Zappa. A lot. A lot. Voted. Most likely to open the Frank Zappa Museum. Museum. <laughs> so, but I, I'm just, I'm just, there's so much information. I'm so sort of overwhelmed. I don't even know where to start. Well, let's start by talking about your favorite Frank Zappa song and why you love it. Oh, man. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's fucking impossible. Oh, come on. Just, just give us, give us a taste. I'll give you a top five. All right. A top five. Um, Trouble Every Day. Okay, why do you like that song? Because it talks about uh, society. And, um... That's number one, I think. This is Trouble Every Day by Frank Zappa. Paul's number two pick of his favorite Frank Zappa song, I think, is going to be Flower Punk. Oh, yeah. What's the name of the album? Uh, We're Only In It For The Money. Ooh, that's a good one. This is just sort of like, to me, is like the uh, epitome of quote-unquote freak out music. He's going down to Frisco to start a psychedelic band. Mm -hmm. Going to Frisco to start a Coming in at a strong number four in Paul's top, top five. five is the Muffin Man. 
Muffin Man is seated at the table in the laboratory of the Utility Muffin Research Kitchen. Reaching for an oversized chrome spoon, he gathers an intimate quantity of dried muffin remnants. And brushing his scapular aside, proceeds to dump these inside of his shirt. He turns to us and speaks. Some people like cupcakes better. I, for one, care less for them. Arrogantly twisting the sterile canvas snoot of a fully charged icing anointment utensil, he puts forth a quarter-ounce bean rosette. <laughs> He puts forth a quarter-ounce green rosette near the summit of a dense but radiant muffin of his own design. Later, he says, Some people, some people, <laughs> like cupcakes exclusively, while myself, I say, there is not, nor ought there be, nothing so exalted on the face of God's great earth as that prince of foods, the muffin. Not sponsor. It's a girl like you. Tell and in a place like So I think uh Paul's number five is gonna be What kind of a girl do you think we are live at the Fillmore East in nineteen seventy one? And there's uh some history that goes with that that ties into uh, a couple of stars that were in the last episode. So being that that was his fifth and final favorite uh, out of his top five, he probably has a top 300 favorite mm-hmm. Frank Zappa songs. Mm-hmm. But uh, here's a really funny interview with Frank Zappa about him talking about when John Lennon and Yoko Ono came a-calling mm-hmm. at his doorstep, and it's a super funny interview. So enjoy. Can you tell about what happened with John and Yoko in the Fillmore? Yes, I can tell you very specifically what happened with John and Yoko at the Fillmore. <laughs> I was uh, scheduled to do an interview with Howard Smith from a radio station in uh, New York. And at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, I was awakened out of bed in my hotel room, came stumbling to the door in my pants with my hair in my eyes and all kinds of little sleep dust. <laughs> and I'm going, oh, God, another interview. And open the door and here's Howard standing at the door with a with a tape recorder already flailing away and stuffs a microphone on my face and says hi Frank I brought along two friends of mine this is John and Yoko and I was supposed to go eek and stumble backwards in a blind stupor well, I said okay you guys come on in so they walked in and sat down and you know started doing this interview and blah and blah and the interview and blah and blah and blah and then finally when the interview was over I said would you guys like to jam with us tonight at the Fillmore and John said well he he didn't think that he would but Yoko was positive that she would and so I said well okay Yoko uh you know come on down and uh, come down a little early and you know, come in the dressing room and we'll figure out something that we can do uh that will musically relate after the concert. So we sat around in this little room upstairs and played some old rhythm and blues stuff for a while. And then they, they went out and sat in the sound mixers booth 
throughout the show, and I guess they liked it a lot because when the thing was over, they both ran down. They were ready to go on as, as soon as we went off. So uh, we played for about 40 minutes, I guess, and it just so happened that we had made arrangements to record <clears throat> that night. That's when we, the same night we did the Fillmore album, and the whole thing got laid down on tape. And John and I had an agreement that we were going to jointly mix the tape and uh, decide how we were going to put it out, you know, because there are big contract difficulties involved in getting the thing out. So it sat around for a while, I guess about a year, and uh, there was nothing done about releasing it. Finally, I got word that uh, John <clears throat> was going to release it and that uh, some negotiation was going to be worked out but that negotiation never occurred as a matter of fact he went in i'd, I'd sent him a, a safety copy of the 16 track masters and uh i guess he went in with phil Spector and mixed the thing with this ridiculous tape delay echo on it he turned off mark and howard's voices on the the um, section called scumbag and they were the only ones who were really singing on it and you can't even hear hear them on their version of the thing i have a mix of the thing too you wouldn't even recognize the the two events and you know he, they did weird things like uh put in certain applause where it didn't really occur and you know they changed the thing around and then the ultimate insult was to take uh the tune King Kong, which was obviously an ensemble performance, you know, where everybody in the mothers knew what they were playing. They were playing the melody. It was obviously a song. Uh, you know, if it if it had been a situation where uh, I was mixing the thing, I would say, well, that's obviously a song. What is the name of that song, and who has the writing and publishing on that? Well, it didn't occur in their case. They retitled King Kong Jam Rag took the publishing and writing credit and put that on the album that way you know so consequently there was a number of very irate phone calls between our office and alan klein and you know a bunch of uh, show business crap like that anyway that's the story of the fillmore album frank zappa on electric tongue on cami so that was kind of enlightening that was crazy how, how, why would you even do that yeah well because he's a but why would you change it? What do you call it? Rag something? Yeah, jam rag. Jam rag. Uh, his song King Kong and he and, he, and John Lennon. That's crazy, man. Kevin, uh, I'd be pissed. <laughs> that would be like if I were to uh, go in and, and go in and record John Lennon say in 1971, and it's like he's it's like Imagine. oh, it's called Imagine, and I went, what if I just changed the name to Imagine all the poople? Yeah. Yeah, something stupid like that. Yeah, yeah. No, no. I, I, I think that Zappa does have an alternative recording that is released. Zappa always has an alternative recording. Zappa actually used to record every single one of his um, performances uh, aside. He he would bring his own recording rec equipment to record his own performances. He, in order. He released a box set called Beat the Boots, mm -hmm. which I own because he wanted to beat all the bootleggers and record his own shows. And he and he released uh, a buttload of uh, a bunch of his live stuff in this this gigantic box um, called Beat the Boots. That's awesome. Yeah. 
It's kind of like what uh, Pearl Jam was doing when they released all their live, they recorded all their live performances, so bootleggers would record them and release them. <clears throat> well, the he bootleggers will still record and release them, but yeah, people but would probably that, rather have a copy not of that quality. Yeah, from the band. So yeah, yeah I guess that's a that's a trick to beat the bootleggers and yep. just get your own copy. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. He was doing this shit in the fucking 70s and yeah. 80s, you know, trying to beat bootleggers. Well, in the 80s, we're going to bring this up one more time. It's like there was a thing going on to where Tipper Gore and I guess uh, Al Gore was vice president. Oh, I don't fucking remember. I, I could give a fuck Gore. about politics back then. But anyway, uh, Vice censored. President Al Gore's wife. Yeah, wanted to censor everything. Wanted to censor everything and put a label on it, which inadvertently sold more records because kids would look at the records and say explicit lyrics, yeah. and they'd be like, yeah, 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 yeah. Give <laughs> yeah. it to me, give it to me, give it to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, but anyway, this shit went to court before they did this, and Frank Zappa had uh, a pretty good deal to say about that and I think I'm going to let you hear what Frank Zappa had to say. Ah, nice. We're just going to play a little bit of it because it's quite lengthy. You guys can easily YouTube this stuff. The next witness will be Mr. Frank Zappa. Mr. Zappa, thank you very much for being with us. Please proceed. Okay, my name is Frank Zappa. This is my attorney Larry Stein from Los Angeles. Can you hear me? Could you, if you could speak very directly and clearly into the microphone, I'd appreciate it. Okay, my name is Frank Zappa. This is my attorney, Larry Stein. Um, the statement that I prepared that I sent you 100 copies of is five pages long, so I have shortened it down, and I'm going to read a condensed version of it. Certain things have happened. Uh, I've been listening to the... Uh, event in the other room, and I've heard some conflicting reports as to whether or not people in this committee want legislation. I understand that Mr. Hollings does from his comments. Is that correct? I, I think you better concentrate on your testimony rather than asking questions the, the of the committee. The reason I need Mr. to ask it because if it, I have to change something in my testimony if so if there is not a clear-cut version of whether or not yeah. legislation is what is being discussed here. So yeah, the best I can, because I, I don't think anybody here could characterize Mr. Holl Senator Holling's position. Okay. Well, I'll carry on with the, um, the issue then. Yeah, First thing I, I might have, I cannot do a little bit of my life, but I think you Yes. This is one senator that might be interested in legislation and or regulation uh, to some extent uh, recognizing the problems with free right of expression and my previously expressed views that I don't believe I should be telling other people what they have to listen to. But I really believe that the suggestions made by the original panel was some kind of an arrangement uh, for voluntarily policing this in the music industry is the correct way to go. Mm -hmm. So uh, if it'll help you out in your testimony, uh, I might join Senator Hollings in, uh, or others in some kind of legislation and or regulation unless the free enterprise system, uh, both the producers and you as the performers, uh, see fit to clean up your act. Okay, thank you. Then I, okay, so that's hardly voluntary. 
Uh, first thing I would like to do, because I know there is some foreign press involved here, and they might not understand what the uh, issue is about. One of the things the issue is about is the, the uh, First Amendment to the Constitution. And I it's short, and I'd like to read it so they will understand. It says, Congress shall make no, no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. That's for reference. These are my personal observations and opinions. I speak on behalf of no group or professional organization. The PMRC proposal is an ill-conceived piece of nonsense which fails to deliver any real benefits to children, infringes the civil liberties of people who are not children, and promises to keep the courts busy for years dealing with the interpretational and enforcemental problems inherent in the proposal's design. It is my understanding that, in law, First Amendment issues are decided with a preference for the least restrictive alternative. In this context, the PMRC demands are the equivalent of treating dandruff by decapitation. No one has forced Mrs. Baker or Mrs. Gore to bring Prince or Sheena Easton into their homes. Thanks to the Constitution, they are free to buy other forms of music for their children. Apparently, they insist on purchasing the works of contemporary recording artists in order to support a personal illusion of aerobic sophistication. Ladies, please be advised, the 898 purchase price does not entitle you to a kiss on the foot from the composer or performer in exchange for a spin on the family Victrola. Taken as a whole, the complete list of PMRC demands reads like an instruction manual for some sinister kind of toilet training program to housebreak all composers and performers because of the lyrics of a few. Ladies, how dare you? The ladies' shame must be shared by the bosses of the major labels who, through the RIAA, chose to bargain away the rights of composers, performers, and retailers in order to pass H.R. 2911, the blank tape tax a private tax levied by an industry on consumers for the benefit of a select group within that industry. Is this a consumer issue? You bet it is. The major record labels need to have HR 2911 whiz through a few committees before anybody smells a rat. One of them is chaired by Senator Thurman. Is it a coincidence that Mrs. Thurman is affiliated with the PMRC? I can't say she's a member because the PMRC has no members. Their secretary told me on the phone last Friday that the PMRC has no members, only founders. I asked how many other DC wives are non-members of an organization that raises money by mail, has a tax-exempt status, and seems intent on running the Constitution of the United States through the family paper shredder. I asked, if, I asked her if it was a cult. Finally, she said she couldn't give me an answer and that she had to call their lawyer. While the wife of the Secretary of Treasury recites, gonna drive my love inside you, and Senator Gore's wife talks about bondage and oral sex at gunpoint on the CBS Evening News, people in high places work on a tax bill that is so ridiculous, the only way to sneak it through is to keep the public's mind on something else. Porn rock. Is the basic issue morality? Is it mental health? Is it an issue at all? The PMRC has created a lot of confusion with improper comparisons between song lyrics, videos, record packaging, radio broadcasting, and live performances. These are all different mediums, and the people who work in them have a right to conduct their business without trade-restraining legislation whipped up like an instant pudding by the wives of Big Brother. Is it proper that the husband of a PMRC non-member founder person sits on any committee considering business pertaining to the blank tape tax or his wife's lobbying organization. 
Can any committee thus constituted find facts in a fair and unbiased manner? This committee has three that we know about, Senator Danforth, Senator Packwood, and Senator Gore. For some reason, they seem to feel there is no conflict of interest involved. Children in the vulnerable age bracket have a natural love for music. If, as a parent, you believe they should be exposed to... So I was wrong. It was Senator Al Gore. <laughs> I know that went on for a long time, people. But uh, this is only part one, and we don't usually do our parts congruently. So when you want to hear part two, it might be in a couple of weeks, we might jump into something else. Thank you for listening. We love you very much, and keep listening to Frank Zappa, a national treasure, if there ever was one. And his son, Dweezil, is going out. Uh, he's been doing, it's not, it's not really a tribute show. He's playing the music of Frank Zappa with top musicians, and he's it's doing Zappa, Zappa shows. Zappa. Zappa plays Zappa. And <laughs> on this tour, he's featuring... Hot Rats in its entirety. Nice. Which should be a real treat. So if he's uh, swinging by your town, please go out and check check out Hot Rats. And we'll continue with his argument with the PMRC because he's burning these people. Yeah. He's burning these people. Life. But also, uh, while, while we're speaking of, I, 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 I don't remember the name. I think it was Kansas. But um, the Mothers, the original Mothers band, are touring again with another band. I'm pretty sure it's Kansas. I'm like 95% sure it's Are Kansas. you sure we're not in Kansas anymore? Not in, yeah, but the band Kansas um, joined forces with the original members of the Mothers, and they're going to be touring around, and so look out for that. Don Preston sure. and all those dudes. Ugh, it's going to be great. And for any nerds that are hanging out here in Tucson that are music nerds, because you kind of might have to sometimes, occasionally, not all the times, like 99% of the time, you don't have to be a music nerd to listen to this podcast, but sometimes the nerdiness does seep in, and this um, particular one is definitely one of those. Uh, King Crimson <laughs> is also coming into town, and I think that's going to be a pretty hot show, and let's catch Robert Fripp before he kicks the magic bucket. Yeah. And he's, <laughs> he is one of the best guitar players ever. And that's sure to be an interesting show, and I've heard nothing about them having nothing but top-notch musicians. So make sure you check that out if you're in the Tucson area or wherever. Look look up look up the touring schedule, I'm sure. They're, if you live in a city, they're probably, probably not. City, I'm sure they're probably going to be zapping around the Midwest or, or the, uh, the, the West States. Coast mostly are the east coast and i'm sure if you're in the midwest you're screwed but that's not necessarily true you know why because i don't know <laughs> yeah look it up fuckers. <laughs> look, it, look it up fuckers <laughs> anyway yeah king crimson uh the dweezil zappa show hot rats that's gonna be great um there's so much so much good stuff going on right now and we're gonna get getting gearing in for the summer crazy concert times because yeah. but it's right also, around the corner. so much stuff about Zappa that we need to just uh we need to um, do some actual research well not not that but like, like <laughs> god forbid we do that <laughs> not actual research are you kidding me <laughs> but I mean they're just uh, I just didn't want to I love the guy so goddamn much I just didn't want to to uh like I feel like I'm not doing him justice and I wanted to like you know really um he he was just such an interesting dude. He did so much shit. Not only weird, offensive rock, but um, 
insane um compositions that were just all all he, uh, he i mean he actually worked he as wrote a composer, he wrote pretty much composer. all the instruments he composed the london symphony orchestra and and did all kinds of amazing works i mean as a musician he's brilliant so uh, i just didn't want to like gloss over any of that cool shit because he, he did a lot of cool shit no we can do it we can do a lot more in frank zappa yeah so in another episode in another episode coming up We'll get back to... Uh, we need to do Elliot Smith again. <laughs> Elliot Smith again. And I'm also um, toying... I think I think the next episode... I'm saying I think because I don't know for sure, but I got a feeling that, that just the time, the temperature in the political air is screaming for Nina Simone. Oh, yeah. And we want to talk about a badass. And we need a badass right now. So oh, we're going to yeah. summon the ghost of Nina Simone. To smack you fuckers in the face. <laughs> and, yeah, I think Nina's going to be our next one. But thank you for listening. We love you very much. Well, let me see that guitar right okay, there. Okay, all righty then. Let me sing you out. You guys have a good night. Listen to this. Listen to the Killer Music Podcast. We don't talk about much. 